Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Monday, November the 2nd. Sadly, Sean Connery passed away over the weekend at the age of 90. So we'll walk down memory lane, get your feedback on his most memorable roles other than James Bond. And in the final day of campaigning in the U.S. election, Trump is threatening legal action in Pennsylvania. What's that all about? We'll find out from CBS White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. But first, according to a senior government source who is unnamed right now, the province is expected to announce that they will establish a new standard that would see long-term care residents receive an average of four hours of direct care every day. Now, we'll get additional details in the provincial budget later this week, and a long-term care staffing plan will be released next month. But here to talk about it, Samir Sinha, who is director of uh, geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on, as always. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what they're proposing right now is that uh, residents in long-term care receive an average of four hours of direct care every day. That's not going to happen until at least 2025. But let's talk about the amount of daily care the average long-term care resident receives right now in the province. And can you speak to the inadequacies of the time? Yeah, the challenge is, is that the government, after the wet law for inquiry, was actually compelled to actually do a staffing study because there were major concerns that right now we're not delivering enough care in our long-term care homes. And by the government's own study, uh, the average resident, um, who typically is a person in their 80s, 70% of them have dementia, um, and their care needs are significantly increasing, such as the need to be dressed or to help with toileting and that. So these are very very, um, very frail people who need a lot of help. And on average, they're currently getting about 2.5 to 2.7 hours of care per day. So the government's own um, expert group by the end of June said they should be really receiving at least four hours of care per day, which is what advocates like myself have been advocating for a long time. Um, and then recently, uh, when the government received that, they said they would study it, that study that recommendation. The Long-Term Care Commission, which hasn't been compelled to make any recommendations, came out with inter, um, intermediate recommendations just about a week or so ago and said, stop studying the study, just go ahead and implement it now. So mm -hmm. it's great to hear that the government will move on it, but by 2025, that's, you know, that's, that's four to five years off, right? Right. I'm expecting a broad strokes announcement today. Um, can you speak to the timing of this? Does this have anything to do with the second wave and new outbreaks in long-term care? Absolutely, because the key is that when you actually don't have a well-staffed system, it's hard to just provide basic daily care, let alone help to shore up resources during a pandemic. And part of the reason we think that Ontario homes have done so poorly is because when you don't even have enough staff to begin with, for example, how can you actually mount a reasonable defense at the same time? So I think, you know, certainly we've been talking about staffing issues before the pandemic. I think those issues have only been exacerbated by the pandemic. But the challenge is even if you say you're going to provide four hours of care a day, it's been so hard hard to attract people into this field, especially when they're so poorly paid to begin with. Mm -hmm. Now, the source says that the province will need to hire tens of thousands more personal support workers, registered practical nurses and nursing, uh, registered nurses in the coming years to provide the care. Um, the province is uh, pledging to have it achieved by 2025. In your opinion, knowing what you know about the state of long-term care homes, is that even achievable? Is it doable? 
That's the concern because right now we're just talking about bringing four hours of care a day to the people living in the 79,000 beds we currently have. And this is a government that's also pledged to build 30,000 new beds in the coming 10 years as well. So the challenge that we've had is that you know, on average, you know, 80% of homes were having trouble recruiting and retaining staff. And the average person working in a long-term care home only lasts about 18 months, partly because Mm -hmm. the work isn't well paid. You can get more money doing the same work in a hospital. Uh, It's often less injurious and, and, and safer. And that's why we've really had trouble. So I think the key is, it's not just saying that we're putting up a sign saying we're hiring more people because we haven't been able to do that well. We're going to have to look at wages. We're going to actually have to look at how we treat these staff um, to make it a better better environment where people will want to come and work. Right. And I, I would imagine we're going to have to try and attract the right temperament of people because this job is not for everyone. It's not for everybody, but I think I think it's I don't think it's so much the right temperament. I think there are a lot of great people out there who would like to do this work. But again, when we will we'll pay a nurse more money to work in a hospital than in a long term care home, obviously, you know, people are going to go work in a hospital. Um, and so partly and when we don't support staff, when we have staff saying you've got to work an extra shift or, you know what, today you've got to take care of double the number of people that you were before, you know, that really burns people out quicker. So I think I think making a number of steps by saying we're going to better staff these homes, but probably needing to look at how well we pay people as well um, and make sure that we improve the working conditions. All of these things need to be taken into account, but you're right. You know, I don't think if today we said we're going to hire 30,000 new people, um, they would just be jumping, you know, right in. I think, you know, this is going to take time to get the staffing to where it needs to be, but I think it's a good signal that the government is listening to its own experts and finally making the move, especially as this pandemic has shown how poor staffing leads to poor outcomes. Dr. Sinna, what do you want to hear today in the province's announcement? I, I, it, I've been waiting forever to hear that this would actually be done. This is something that's been long advocated for years. So I just actually want to hear the announcement. Um, and I also want to hear a plan to actually make it possible to actually happen. It's one thing to say we're going to hire new people, we're going we're gonna to work towards this, but how are they going to work towards it? Because right now everything that we've been doing so far hasn't really succeeded in recruiting and retaining people in the current system we have. I want to thank you for your time, as always. Very informative stuff. Thanks so much, Dr. Sinna. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Tomorrow is uh, Election Day south of the border. It's the final full day of campaigning in the U.S. I want to welcome on to the show uh, Stephen Portnoy, who is a CBS White House correspondent. Stephen, good to have you on. Hey, it's good to be with you. Okay, there's something weird that's going on in... well. That's an understatement, eh? Uh, In the States right now, and as President Donald Trump said Sunday, he'd like to take legal action if Pennsylvania and other states um, decide to count their ballots after Election Day as they plan to. And at least five counties in Pennsylvania have already announced that they they, um, will not be counting absentee and mail-in ballots until the day after Election Day. Trump said, quote, I don't think it's fair that we have to wait for a long period of time after the election as soon as the election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. Can he actually do this, or is this just Trump blustering again? Yeah, I'm not sure the president is steeped in the law in this area or, or fully understands what, what, even what is happening. Look, uh, at least seven counties, including several counties in rural areas that the president probably stands to do well in, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, have, have said that they don't have the manpower to even begin opening and counting 
absentee mail-in ballots that have been mailed in to, this, to their particular county offices until the day after Election Day, like you explained. Uh, the president very much wants to be able to have a definitive outcome on election night. But what we know is in the state of Pennsylvania, where 2.4 million people have cast ballots by mail, they're not allowed to even open those ballots to begin even checking signatures until 7 o'clock tomorrow, Eastern time tomorrow morning. Now, some hmm. county officials, as I, as I say, say that they won't have the manpower to do that until maybe Wednesday morning. So what you'll have is a circumstance in which there'll be day of ballots that are reported on Tuesday night from Pennsylvania. And then you'll have an understanding from the Secretary of State's office in Harrisburg that there are millions of ballots that haven't been opened yet that have to be counted. So what that means is news organizations, and there are six of them across this country that uh, historically and traditionally report election returns, and and they're the um, organizations that Americans and the world look to for definitive reporting on this, uh, we're not going to be able to make a projection, it's likely, in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't know the outcome of the presidential election. Remember, there are many other states in play, states which could be determinative, regardless of Pennsylvania's outcome, and states where uh, we we expect to learn results much faster because the the rules provide for that. For example, in Arizona, they've been processing ballots, that is, opening them and even putting them into uh, counting machines for weeks now. But those results Mm -hmm. haven't been uh, disclosed. They're still kept secret and secure. So it's possible we could learn results in Arizona, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, maybe even Georgia, that could be determinative with or without Pennsylvania. If it's close, however, well, then we'll have to wait and see. But you should always keep in mind that anytime American, uh, anytime someone claims to know the outcome of a result before the ballots have been even opened, well, they simply don't know what they're talking about. And look, there's one more point of controversy that the president and his aides might seize on, and that is the idea that these ballots that have been mailed in can, according to the rules in Pennsylvania, be collected by elections officials up to three days after Election Day. Now, the requirement is that they be postmarked by the Postal Service by Election Day. The problem is not every ballot is necessarily postmarked. That's an outmoded Hmm. way of doing business. The Postal Service doesn't postmark everything anymore, and they might not in the case of these ballots. So there could be uh, some questions about ballots that come in after Election Day, but I guess we'll have to see what happens. All right. And Trump is worried about Pennsylvania because the odds are very high that Biden's expected to begin closing the gap when it comes to those absentee and mail-in ballots if uh, Trump is is leading it on, in the Election Day votes. Well, I, I think, look, what's, what's evident is the president very much needs to win Pennsylvania. 20 electoral votes. He won it by 44,000 votes four years ago. Uh, the Republicans have uh, worked very hard to increase the number of registered Republicans in Pennsylvania. But um, the bottom line is we'll have to see who brings out the most votes, who has the most votes cast in their favor. Very quickly, because I know you have a minute left here. um, Trump is going to be concentrating on five states today. Which one is the most important? Well, I I won't say that anyone is particularly most important, but he's going to four states. He's going to North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. Every single one of them is critical to the president's outcome. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today, Steve. I I know you're a busy man, so I'm going to let you go. Great. Thanks. Are there things now you can't do as James Bond that you could do uh, 22 years ago? (laughs) I mean, uh, you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a very athletic role. Um, uh, You're involved in all kinds of pursuits and chases and a lot of pretty girls. I just wonder if if you've noticed any um, diminution of... uh... (laughs) Go to hell with it. (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't bring in stunt people for the love scenes is what I'm trying to talk about. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that was a clip where uh, Johnny Carson was having a go at Sean Connery and jealous, probably. Uh, but it just it shows how much of a good sport Sean Connery was. And I just wondered, you know, he's one of the most iconic actors. James Bond, many people associate James Bond with Sean Connery and vice versa. So he passed away at the age of 90, slipped away in his sleep. He was suffering from dementia. And he's, as I said before, Chris, he's the first uh, older actor in a long time or older person in a long time that has some sort of celebrity that I did not immediately say, well, they were still alive. I, I, I really just assumed that Sean Connery was still alive and well, and uh, he wasn't so well, unfortunately. David in Toronto, your favorite Sean Connery vehicle. My favorite? Uh, I think my favorite was Entrapment. I thought that was a pretty, uh, pretty good movie overall, but he definitely had help in that one. Um, I first saw him in The Untouchables because I'm an 80s kid, so okay. that's where I first saw him. And my mother had this huge crush on him. She'd get this flush look on her face. You couldn't even mention his name. She'd get this flush look on <laughs> on her face. Did she you understand why she was flushed at the time, or were you just like, that's weird? At the, at the time, no, I hadn't uh, been through family studies yet. But uh, Excellent. Whew, <laughs> thank goodness. That could have been but awkward. As I get older, each gray hair I get, I understand it a little bit more, though. Right. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Hey, Troy and Muskoka, welcome to the show. Yeah. my All of the movies are great. And Sean Connery is James Bond and vice versa. All the other actors, they have molded themselves off of things that, that wasn't even scripted. You know, like the way he moves and how he spoke, like hands down. You got a bit of a man crush on Sean Connery, I think. <laughs> well, my wife's off day. How many times are you going to watch the same movies over and over again? You know. What was your was What was your first introduction part. to uh, Sean Connery? Was it through James Bond? James Bond. I'm born in the seventies. James Bond. All of those 007. Um, you name it. Like, yeah. And then we we show spaghetti westerns every Saturday, and there was always something in it with Sean Connery. You know what I forgot John Connery was in, and I appreciate the call, uh, Troy. I forgot he was in Terry Gilliam's uh, comedy, Time Bandits. And The Rock, all those movies are super. But I want to say one more thing, and I yeah. know you say to agree with the uh, money for the principles. Um, all I want to say about that is we went through a whole period where they had no money, and all of a sudden we have money. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to get back onto the topic of Sean Connery, if we could. I appreciate that you've been listening the whole morning. But, Graham, welcome to the show. Uh, what was your favorite Sean Connery vehicle? Well, clearly uh, James Bond. He was just so suave and so just, like, kick-ass at that. But uh, for me, because, again, 80s kid, it was the uh, the rock. That was just amazing. He was just, again, just badass. Everything he played in it was just epic. Right. Um, and this is the one that Chris was talking about, The Rock, with yeah. uh, Nicolas Cage. That's right. You, you can't go wrong with Nick Cage and Sean Connery. Hello. Perfect. Yeah. He also was in Highland, Highlander in nineteen eighty six. Oh, Highlander, yeah. Also a great movie. Uh, yeah. I haven't watched it in a long time, but uh, yeah, it's fantastic. 
And the name of the rose. The name also of the rose. From, I'm gonna yeah, have, you know what? I think I might, uh, I might binge watch a whole bunch of Sean Connery films this week. Okay, well, <laughs> the, the name of the rose, it, he plays this Franciscan friar. And it's, it sounds like, okay, and you haven't still grabbed my attention, Kelly. Uh, Christian <laughs> Slater is his young yep. helper, and they become engrossed in this whodunit. And it was from uh, a novel, The Name of the Rose, but it, it's a fascinating movie. I think I'd like to rewatch that over the weekend. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna definitely be... going to binge watch a whole bunch of Sean Connery films this uh, this coming weekend. Weekend. Were you as shocked as I was to learn that he had passed away? Because he was. This is the first time I haven't gone. Oh, wow, they're still alive. Well, I wasn't really in shock, I guess, because the man was 90 years old. So it it happens, which kind of sad, but eh, it's, it is what it is. But uh, he'll live on uh, forever in his films for sure. That's true. I uh, appreciate the call, Lino. What was your hey. uh, favorite uh, Sean Connery movie? I would have to say Family Business. I think it was in 1989, and it was with uh, Matthew Broderick and um, Dustin Hoffman, where it was grandfather's son and grandson, and they were all burglars. Yeah, that one, it's funny. That one is on this list of some of the worst movies Sean Connery oh, was in. No, no, no. I mean, I'm a huge Sean Connery fan. I actually bumped right into him. I walked into him once in a casino in the Bahamas, and he was quite a big guy. I thought he was wait a, a minute. lot shorter. Like, you literally bumped into him, I, I and you're like, whoa, bumped. wait a minute, I just bumped into James Bond? Yeah, he was coming out of a VIP bathroom in the Bahamas, um, uh, on a VIP floor, and I was walking in the bathroom, and I literally walked right into his chest. He had this pink pullover tied over his shoulders, and apparently he did spend a lot of time down there. And it was like, what the hell? So um, I thought it was a sign, and I went and played the double zeros on the um, roulette wheel, but I lost. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't yeah, well, it probably was a sign to pay attention when you're walking into uh, the men's loo. Uh, but it's okay to miss those signals. It sounds like you had a bit of a moment with Sean Connery. I did. And- I, he, it was absolutely. It was like it was a. It was a great moment. It's like oh my god, and I called him Sir, you know, Sean Connery, and it was. Uh, he was very nice to me. But uh, that movie, uh, Family Business, that was a great movie because he wasn't old and he wasn't young and he played the, the tough uh, grandfather. And, uh, you know, Dust, I think Dustin Hoffman and uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, yeah, they, they were great in that movie, but he definitely did st- stand out. All right. Well, hey, you had a moment. Maybe that's why you're willing to overlook what some people would call a dog, but that's fine. Hey, Stephen Tiny. Yeah, uh, for me, best Connery movie would be uh, The Hunt for Red October when he was uh, the captain of the submarine, Ramius. Yeah, that is such a... And I don't want to divide this on gender lines, but that's such a guy movie. I've tried to watch it so many times. It's sort of like, like, you know, that's the movie equivalent for me um, of Rush. Yeah. Musically, right? Because it's like, I don't get it. It's guys steal magnolias, right? Like it's our it's our film. Like I think there's there's two or three women in the whole movie, but uh, yeah, he was he was also in the movie uh, The Longest Day. I think that was actually one of his very first movies, and uh, okay. that's the the D Day invasion in 1962, and he played um, he was was behind the Scottish guy that played the pipes, and the Germans wouldn't shoot at him because they thought he was nuts, but uh, he was he had a small role in that movie. 
All right. You know, he had a, he, when you look at some of the films that he, he's in, they were small roles. He wasn't always the starring um, lead of, of the films that he was in. So, you know, we think of Indiana Jones, they played dad. Uh, Tom and Markham, you wanted to bring up The Longest Day. So over to you. I've never seen The Longest Day. Should I watch it? Oh, my goodness, yes. And you have, like, James Gardner, Robert Mitchum, the Duke himself, John Wayne, and a plethora of other people. Even I think, I think Buddy Hackett even had a small... If you were anybody in that day, you were in that movie. You will never see well, another star-studded movie like that in your whole life. Based on Buddy Hackett. Oh, man. That I, is I bringing back memories of my childhood. Well, Buddy Hackett wasn't even a comedian in the movie. I think he was hung up in a parachute. Yeah, wow. It got a very small bit role in the early 60s. But still, if you haven't seen it, unfortunately, you don't like war movies. It's almost like a... Uh, well, no, it's not that I don't Private like Ryan. war movies. I just found... I was fine with Saving Private Ryan. Very emotional. Uh, especially that first 15 minutes, that opening scene. You're like, whoa, that punctuates what could have been probably did go on uh, there. But the longest day, what I didn't like about the hunt for Red October is it seemed slow to me and very long. Longest day, would that be, in, you know, would it compare to that? It would be. It's a very long movie, actually. So if, if you like Saving Brother Ryan, you will absolutely like that, I think. And just keep your eye out for all the stars, and even Google it. You'll be, you'll freak out how many famous okay. people are in that movie. It was what, like less than twenty years after the Second World War, so it was very close yeah. to home. Well, you you know me, I don't tend to get too excited about much, so we'll see about the freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the call. Uh, Zardoz and the man who will, will be king would be king are. Two uh, comments, one from Pete, one from Morris. I can't get to the calls, unfortunately, because we're all wrapped up. But hey, it's been fun talking to you guys. That's it for the podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show wherever you download your favorite podcast. Just hit subscribe. And if you can, spare us some time when we broadcast live Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.